Welcome back to Suiting Up Varsity, a podcast dedicated to the sound of the band, the smell of popcorn, the feel of an old letter jacket, the sight of teenagers hoisting trophies high above their heads, and most of all to the grand history, fantastic stories, engaging personalities, and interesting issues of Nebraska prep sports. Join us as we look back in time at the great moments and topics from a century plus of Nebraska high school athletics. This week, I'm going to pause our time-traveling exploits to get into the weeds on an important topic in the Nebraska high school sports world, a pair of reclassification proposals which were up for votes in the NSAA district meetings this week. A couple proposals that can be uh, pretty revolutionary, I think, and and I think uh, make, make good changes in the way the NSAA runs. Now, don't worry. There'll be several instances of history talk mixed in here because any changes that Nebraska will make will be rooted in the history of how we got here, uh, which is what we talk about every week. These proposals uh, spring from the work of two committees which were formed by the schools of the NSAA to examine two separate but interrelated issues, classification and the public-private school relationships committee. From the classification committee comes a new idea for dividing schools among the classes in football. But as with anything, I would expect that to spread to other sports soon after adoption. We've seen that with things like substate and other things where in one sport or one class adopts something and, and it kind of works its way out to others. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, the federal uh, democracy laboratory idea where the states come up with an idea and then it slowly builds uh, to nationwide. From the public and private committee comes a new idea about how to determine which schools should be competing against each other in state competitions. Now, I know what you're saying. Yeah, that's, that's classification, right? Yes, the two ideas overlap in several ways. But both proposals, uh, if both proposals make it through the legislative process, they will have to be made to work together. But that's getting a little ahead of our conversation. Uh, let's walk back a little bit first and go through the history of classification in Nebraska for a little perspective. These proposals about reclassification, I believe, both spring from an historical question. That question is, is counting students the only and best way to predict the success that particular schools will have in athletics? Because the whole idea of classifications is to form a level playing field where each school has roughly an equal chance to win. In a perfect world, in a stable class of 64 teams, after 64 years, every school would have won a single state championship in each sport. Of course, it's not a perfect world, but over lots and lots of years, the championship totals should tend toward that ideal, if we're doing it as well as we can. Does it feel like Nebraska classes are tending toward that? I'll I'll let you answer that, but I think it's clear that some adjustment probably is not out of order. For pretty much the entire history of Nebraska high school sports, and, and really every other state's high school sports for that matter, the answer to the question, is counting students the best and only way to divide classes, has been yes. Or more accurately, the answer has been no one's ever asked that question. Why would you ask that? What else is there? Well, we'll get into the what else in a little bit, but let's move back through the history of Nebraska first. 
The first time the idea of classification entered the conversation in Nebraska was for the fifth annual state basketball tournament in 1915. In, from 1911, when Beatrice defeated Omaha South, to 1914, when Lincoln High downed Omaha Central, Nebraska basketball was a one-class system, which is a nicer way of saying no class. In between, there was a final between small-town Geneva and small Lincoln School University Place. But starting in 1915 with the addition of Class B, and then 1916 with the advent of Class C, the idea of what they in Indiana would call class basketball was born in Nebraska. By 1918, there are eight classes through Class H. By 1920, we had Class K as the 11th bracket. And by 1926, the Max Pirates were beating the Lee Panthers for the Class V title, V as in Varum, in a 22-division state tournament. Similarly, the first 20 state track meets from 1900 to 1911 were one-class affairs before B and C were added in 1920, and Class D was added in May of 1929, just five months before that big crash we all studied in school. Remember that football won't really be touched by classification until 1975 when the playoff system is introduced. Before that, the newspapers sometimes ranked teams by their basketball classes, but that was all unofficial. Another point to remember is that those first basketball tournaments and track meets were as much events run by the university in Lincoln and their coaching staffs as they were Nebraska High School Athletic Association productions. It seems to have been the NU coaching staff that slotted basketball teams into classes for those tournaments in the 1910s and 1920s. They were looking at perceived strength of teams as much as school size. Think of a modern youth basketball tournament director dividing his entries into brackets. That's closer to the system they used in those early state basketball tournaments. The only qualification usually was that you had won half of your uh, regular season games. It is with the advent of district basketball competition in the late 1920s, 1929 I believe, that classes start to be codified by enrollment. At that point, it is decided that the best way to protect athletic team success, which is what one is doing when you divide schools into classes, trying to even out the opportunities for success, is to count students and classify certain ranges of populations together. Of course, in the 20s and 30s through 1970, they were just counting boys. But since Title IX, they have been counting all students. That brings us to one of the new proposals and one of the facets of the first one uh, that's up for vote this week. It is a pretty straightforward return to counting just boys when it comes to football, since it is almost entirely boys that play football. That probably makes a lot of sense, especially at smaller schools where an off-balance ratio of girls to boys could really make it difficult to field an adequate squad size to be competitive in football. The other part of that proposal, though, is a bigger change of thinking in Nebraska classification. The idea is to anchor classes by setting a maximum and minimum number of boys instead of setting a number of teams. In the past, Nebraska has legislated the number of schools that would be in each class, not set a range of biggest to smallest for a class. And then they've just taken however many schools it takes uh, to fit that number. 
For example, at various times in history, Class A has been defined as the biggest 16 teams or the biggest 24 teams or 28 teams or 32 teams. And then Class B has been the next 32 or 48 or 64, depending on what era of Nebraska sports you're talking about and so on, through the other classes. The enrollment size of the largest school or the smallest school in the class then has not been set. Instead, it depended on which school's enrollment just happened to fall on the lucky or unlucky number when counting schools from biggest to smallest. Two schools of the same size could arbitrarily be split by a tiebreaker into two different classes. This was and is done to make the class sizes easy to deal with in the postseason brackets. Notice the evenness of the numbers I mentioned before. But it sometimes created big spreads between the largest and smallest schools in a class, especially as enrollment shifted over the years. What sounded like a good number of schools in one year could 10 years later create a a spread where sometimes the smallest schools school was four or four and a half times smaller than the biggest school. Uh, In the past, Nebraska's answer to that has been to change the number of teams in the classes, to reset that. This year, however, they are, for the first time, I believe, looking at setting a top and bottom enrollment number to keep the ratio between biggest and smallest under control, knowing that they will sometimes have odd numbers of teams to deal with in classes, and that maybe a class could shrink. As, uh, as, as teams fall out of uh, that range and another class could grow. But they like the idea that they can control the ratio between the schools. Now, that sounds pretty logical. And last spring, when I found out that my athletic director at my school was on that committee, I started looking at the enrollment numbers in Nebraska to see if there were some obvious cut points, hoping to maybe arm her with some statistics that might help her and her committee with their work. So I started looking at the enrollment numbers and trying to gauge at what point size became a a really big advantage. You know, was it when the biggest school in the class was twice as big as you were, or when they became three times, or three and a half times, or four times? You know, was there some kind of, of magic ratio? that made a great class. And that started me considering that question of, okay, what, you know, what really makes teams have success? What factors are common in the schools that have success? And what I found when I really started uh, messing with the numbers really shook my belief uh, that enrollment is the best and only factor that should be considered in classifying schools for athletic competition. And it dissuaded me of my basic assumption that the smallest schools in a given class have a distinct disadvantage in competing with the biggest, especially if they're seven times smaller. What seemed such a central tenet of the way I thought about class divisions and of the way we determine athletic classes in general just didn't show up when I started crunching a few numbers. That led me to understand that the two committees charged by the NSAA, the Classification Committee, and the Public-Private Committee had a lot more in common than I would have previously thought. In the end, uh, I would find myself presenting the math I did to the public and private committee. And I think some of the things I showed them that day eventually kind of fit into their legislation. Uh, 
Uh, but before I get to their proposal, I'd like you, I'd like to run through the math that I did, what I found. Um, I'll actually share the Google slides I have that have my charts and graphs on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash suitingupvarsity. If you're interested in taking a look at those, sometimes it's easier to understand if you can see them represented uh, in pictures. And follow along if you want. And remember, I warned you that we'd be getting into the weeds a little bit here. Before I go all math geek on you, I'd like to put in another plug for the Nebraska High School Hall of Fame in Lincoln. If you haven't been down there yet, uh, I keep telling you every week, uh, it's, a, it's a great time to get down there and see what they have. The great displays, uh, the interactive screens, uh, the pictures, the video content, the stories, uh, the stories that go with all their memorabilia, their displays on the uh, high school track records to, to show you exactly how far and high those are. Uh, every bit of the Hall of Fame is done in a first-class manner. Uh, if there's any way you can get down to Lincoln on a Monday, uh, Wednesday, or Friday from 10 to 4, uh, get down there. You know, if you're going down for the state football championships in a couple weeks, make that part of your trip to Lincoln, the Nebraska High School Hall of Fame. Well worth your time. Okay, as I said, one of the first things I really... Uh, you know, looked at was I was just kind of looking at the breaks between classes and, okay, would, you know, would we be better off? There's kind of a hole in the middle of class B, you know, Lexington is the only team uh, that has more than 500 kids and less than 700. You know, every other set of 100 has a lot of schools in there, but, you know, Lex is kind of alone. You know, maybe that would be a good cutoff point. And I started looking at different things. Boy, that makes the classes awful small. Well, that, that brought me to the question, well, how, how big a class is good? And I started thinking historically a little bit, you know, Class A had been only 16 teams for a while. And then I just started thinking historically about classifications. And I, I kind of ran through the history we did earlier about how uh, the Nebraska coaches set the classes at first, and then they, they did it by number of boys and number of students. And I thought, wow, they, they never really looked at anything else. And so I thought... Is the number of students in your school the chief factor in predicting athletic success? Is that the number one thing that will predict whether you have good teams or not, that you have more kids? Is it the best way? Is it the only way? So first of all, I thought, well, I'm going to have to be able to define success. <laughs> so what I did is I looked at success in basketball, both girls and boys, and volleyball and football. Uh, that kind of limited it for me so I could deal with the data a little bit. And I thought, well, these are the sports that draw a lot of, of attention. When people complain that a classification system is wrong or that private schools should be classified in different ways, you know, they often point to success in those sports. It also helped me that they have similar classification setups. They're all six-class sports uh, in the NSAA. Uh, they all have end-of-the-season state tournaments, so I could kind of go by, you know, did you make it to the round of eight? Did you make it to the semifinals? Did you make it to the final? Did you win a championship? Uh, they have a pretty good uh, representation of successful athletic programs. I mean, when we think of schools that are good at athletics, we think of teams that succeed in basketball, volleyball, and football, and they're offered by almost all schools of all sizes. So I looked at that, and I came up with a point formula kind of arbitrarily, uh, 10 points for a state championship, eight points for a runner-up, six for making the semifinals, and four for the quarterfinals. And I, and I went ahead and punched that all into a database, which took a little while. Uh, but you know, with me, that's kind of a, a, 
a labor of love. I like looking back to see who 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 the winners were. It's amazing how quick you forget forget them. Uh, and I put together data from 2006 through 2016, a 10-year span, because I wanted to look at averages. I didn't want to just look at one year, you know, was a school great one year. I, I was looking for teams that had continued success so that I could start looking for factors to see how we predicted that. And what I found is that uh, the average in the state was 17 points over a five-year span. I looked at a five-year span because that's kind of the life of a high school. You know, every, every four years, you totally empty out all your kids. So 17 points was the state average. So that's like a team that, you know, is a state runner-up, uh, you know, gets to a state semifinal another year and maybe a quarterfinal. That's in four sports within five years. So, you know, that's, that's, that's great, but it's not out of this world success. I found that the state median, the, the middle school, when I listed them from most successful to least successful was just eight points. So, you know, half the schools in the state in a five-year span, they made the state quarterfinals twice in those four sports, 20 seasons combined. So, you know, that gives you an idea of kind of what the average school or the median school is, uh, is having success-wise. Then I basically uh, made 2011 the fulcrum for my study of this because what I thought was, okay, I want to go back to 2011 and look at the statistics back to 2006. So I'd have the last five years. And I would say, okay, what could I look at for those five years that would predict what happened from 2011 to 2016. So kind of in my thought experiment, you know, I, I pretended the last five years hadn't happened yet. And I was looking at 2011 saying, okay, if I was going to classify these teams, what factors could I have used that would have predicted the success that then I, indeed I could check because I do have the data from those years? Right away, one thing jumped out at me, and I, I guess you can probably guess what it is, and it's the whole reason uh, that one of those committees existed, and that is that private schools uh, were over twice as successful as the average school and, and uh, almost three times as successful as the average public school. The average private school scored 36 points over five years, so that's, you know, uh, two state championships, uh, a state runner-up, and a couple quarterfinal appearances. You know, that's, that's pretty good success over five years in four sports, remember. And the public schools averaged 14 points. So that's, the, you know, that's maybe a semifinal and a couple, uh, couple quarterfinal appearances in the four sports. So there was right away a, a huge gap there. It, it's pretty obvious that private schools do about two-point times 2.5 times as well as public schools on average. Now, the private schools would argue that special rules to reclassify them are unfair. And honestly, in looking around the nation at some states that have kind of tried that, many people think the courts would back them up. Uh, now, there's... Uh, there are states where the private schools just have separate athletic associations to handle this. They don't even play in state competition against the public. I don't think Nebraska is interested in that. Uh, we have a long tradition of, of, of the two types of schools competing together. I think uh, a lot of what we enjoy about high school athletics, you know, that plays a part in. Uh, and I also, um, I also don't think our state is big enough to do that. You know, we, we only have a certain number of schools as is. Dividing into two would just, I think, water down uh, the championships. 
Uh, I think that the success, though, of private schools could be attributed to other factors. So I started trying to look at those schools and also then maybe identify some factors that successful public schools also had. So uh, at that point, uh, you know, I was really stuck with that question. Well, why not enrollment is the only factor? Is is it size? You know, uh, are those private schools somehow managing their enrollment? Is, is that one of the reasons they're so successful? Uh, and what I would expect, if that was the case, then school size would be the number one factor. Uh, when I looked at it, smaller schools in each class would be least less successful on average. It, w- it would just make sense if enrollment was the biggest and only factor. So uh, I divided out the schools and kind of ranked them all by what, what was their ratio compared to the biggest school in their class? Are they, you know, within one to 1.5 times uh, smaller than the biggest, or are they all the way down to some schools are three to three and a half times smaller than the biggest school? And uh, what I found was that the average success of schools in all those different categories 1 to 1.5, 1.5 to 2, 2 to 2.5, et cetera, all the way to 3 to 3.5, that they were all within a very small plus or minus of the average school. Remember, the average school scored 17 success points in my formula. Well, the largest schools in every class averaged 18 success points. The next category, 17. Actually, the least successful in this data was the 13 points averaged by schools that were two to two and a half times smaller. But then it goes the other direction. Schools that were two and a half to three times smaller than the biggest school in their class were the best. They averaged 21 success points. And the smallest schools, the schools that were three to three and a half times smaller than the largest school averaged right on the state average 17 success points. And really, if you look at that, that isn't any kind of the differences we saw in the public-private, you know, where the publics were averaging 36 success points and the privates were averaging 14. All those schools are within 13 to 21. You know, if all the schools in our state were only eight success points different, over a four-year span, the best schools, you know, made one state final that the worst schools didn't make, and that was the only difference, uh, we probably wouldn't be having this talk. We'd have an amazing classification system. So right away, my, my whole idea that being the smallest school in your class was this huge disadvantage uh, was just blown out of the water. It, it doesn't stand up statistically. So I thought, well, hold it, hold it, hold it. Maybe that's because I'm looking at all the schools. Let's look at just class B, which, as I said before, is kind of the biggest stretch class. You know, uh, Elkhorn South, 886 students to Omaha Gross, 293. I took a look at that, and there was a little more of a spread. The most successful teams in class B were in the biggest ones, and they averaged 36 success points. But the smallest schools were at 23. So not that uh, the average school in Class B had 28 success points. Since there's fewer schools, there's a little more success to go around. And again, the worst category was the middle schools, the schools in the middle of the class, not the schools at either end. And, and so I started thinking about that. Why is that happening? Well, maybe it's that the biggest and smallest schools, maybe they are more fluid between classes. Maybe they're actually moving over a five-year period, you know, that a bunch of them are moving and being the smallest school in the class for a while, and then they're the biggest school in the next one down. Maybe that's what's going on, and maybe that's why the middle 
schools are having the least success? I don't know. Either way, the, the stretches just weren't so big that it was anywhere near that public-private gap. So I just didn't think. I, I think enrollment matters. And you have to remember that all of my numbers, enrollment is affecting all of them because we have a class system. It's not like I'm saying that the smallest schools in Class D could compete with uh, you know, Lincoln High and, and, and Omaha West Side. I'm not saying that. We already have a classification system. I'm just talking about within our classes, enrollment is not statistically the biggest factor determining success. Okay, so now that kind of my whole paradigm of, of, of how you would predict success amongst teams was kind of blown out of the water by those numbers, um, I started looking around and saying, okay, what else? Remember that question from earlier? What other factors could you use to predict success? And because they predict success, you use them for classifications. So I thought, well, let's look around the nation. Maybe other uh, high school associations are doing things a little different. And the first thing I thought is, okay, I want to look for states that are similar to Nebraska in terms of size, number of schools, and population density. So, you know, I, I hit the geography websites a little bit. And I came up with four states, Kansas, New Mexico, Maine, and Oklahoma. Now, I especially like that Kansas and Oklahoma were on that list because they fit with Nebraska culturally, too. So I, so I started looking around their association websites to see how their classification systems work. I learned that Kansas, New Mexico, and Maine have very similar classification systems to Nebraska, totally based on enrollment. And I found at least one headache that we don't have. The Kansas classification systems are actually outlined in state law, not just in their association's rules. So if they want to make a change, they have to go through the legislature. Thank goodness that we aren't dealing with that. Boy, I tell you, the Kansas state government, if you're looking for dysfunction, that seems to be the place to look. Should I, should I not say that on a podcast? All right, I'm going to leave that in. Uh, that left me with Oklahoma, and I found that they had an enrollment-based system, but they used some other factors to adjust their classification system. They actually have a rule uh, where they have four factors, and if your school meets three of these, then you move up a class. Uh, First factor, <laughs> this is definitely pointed at private schools. It would be in Nebraska. It says, can you restrict enrollment? Can you turn away kids that live in your school area? Well, in Nebraska, private schools are the only ones that do that. Now, Oklahoma actually has some magnet schools and some charter schools that have that ability too. So that's why they have that rule. In Nebraska, I don't see that being uh, workable. But remember, it's only one of four factors, and you just have to meet three of these in Oklahoma. Factor number two is... Is your population of free and reduced lunch, federal free and reduced lunch kids, is it below 25% of your population? I wondered where they get the 25% number. A little searching on the internet, pretty quickly that, that is obviously the federal standard for a poverty school. If you have more than 25%, you count as a poverty school for the federal uh, government. Factor three, have you had 50% enrollment growth over three years? I think Oklahoma has maybe had some schools growing faster than Nebraska. When I started thinking about that for Nebraska, I realized, boy, there can't be very many schools that would even fit into that one. And then uh, the fourth factor, are you within 15 miles of a big school? And they rank that as a school of 600 or more because that was one of their classification cutoffs. And I thought, yeah, I'm kind of interested in looking at that because, you know, I get the feeling when we talk now a lot about success at the high school level, we talk about youth feeder programs, 
you know? And I just think it's an advantage to be a smaller school in an area that has more youth sports opportunities because there's a bigger school around as opposed to being a smaller school the same size out in the middle of nowhere where your kids can only compete against your kids. So I thought, yeah, that that makes sense for Nebraska. I want to look at that. And then they also had a, a trigger where a team from a school, a team in an individual sport, would move up a class any time it plays in the state quarterfinals three times in a five-year span. So if your baseball team was, was a powerhouse, they might move up a class while your football and basketball and track teams stayed down in the other class. So that was the Oklahoma system, and it gave me some things that I could then look at in Nebraska. So I started with those Oklahoma factors and the ideas they kind of brought up uh, in my brain. Uh, the first question I asked, okay, does the, the number of free and reduced lunch kids you have, the percentage you have, uh, help predict athletic success? And it became pretty obvious very quickly, yes, it does in Nebraska. My numbers look very similar to that huge gap we had between private and public schools, except now I was talking about a factor that, that didn't just point to private schools, because not all private schools are below that 25% ratio. Some of them are above. And uh, But what it turned out is the schools that were below 25% had success ratios way up above 30, uh, where, again, remember the average school was at 17, and the schools that had the other percentages were actually pretty even. They averaged 12, 11, and 10 success points. So from 33 to a to a 10 to 12 ratio, that was a pretty obvious advantage. I, I thought that's something I could point to to predict success. You know, looking at 2011, I could say, okay, if your free and reduced lunch is below 25%, I bet you're going to have success over the next five years, and I would be right more often than I was wrong. Now, there were a few schools that were masked in the uh, federal stats, uh, but it, and, and that was because either their free and reduced lunch percentage was way high or way low, uh, and the federal government didn't want to identify that, hey, every kid here is on free and reduced lunch, or no kids here are on free or reduced lunch. But it was pretty easy by knowing the schools in Nebraska to figure out which ones were masked but probably very low and which ones were masked but probably very high. And and they fit right in with those averages. The masked but very low uh, were very, very, uh, but probably low were very, very successful, and the masked uh, but probably high were, were not successful. Uh, so I thought I was on to something there. Um, so I thought I'd look at football in particular to make sure it held there because I think a lot of times we think of enrollment as especially affecting football. You know, you've got to have a squad size. You've got to have enough boys to be able to compete there. And what I found was um, that maybe in football it even predicted better, that the schools with low poverty uh, – were much more successful with the schools that had higher levels of poverty in their school. So uh, with one factor down, I thought, you know, there's something else that could be used in classification, and I think Oklahoma is kind of on the right track. To think of it this way, uh, you've probably seen this statistic in the papers. It's been talked about a lot, how private schools in Nebraska, who are 15% of the total schools, have won 37% of the state championships. Compare that to this. Very similar statistic. Schools that are below the 25% free and reduced lunch, whether they're public or private, make up 
of the total schools, but have won 60% of the state titles. 60% of the state titles won by these low poverty schools. I think that points to the fact that that looking at a poverty rate at a school is even a better way to identify success than, than public-private, and I think a much fairer way, because there are certainly some private schools um, that, because of the mission they take on, are dealing with a much more uh, tough clientele to have athletic success. I think it's much more fair. Okay, so I decided with one successful examination to look at the Oklahoma rule about being within 15 miles of a 600-plus school. Now, I just stuck with Oklahoma's 600 because, okay, that gave me something to stick to. Um, I knew they had picked it because one of their classifications cut off there in Nebraska. That would be about halfway through Class B, as I said. So it didn't work as well, but it gave me a number to look at to see if that radius had anything to do, and it did. Uh, schools inside such a radius are twice as successful as the average school. And schools that are inside there are one-third less successful than, than the average. So being inside a, ra- a radius with a larger school seems to be a way to predict athletic success. Um, so then I looked at the next Oklahoma factor, which was does growing by 50%, I think it was within a four-year range, I think I might have used my five-year range, does you know astronomical growth lead to success? And my numbers said yes. The schools in Nebraska that were growing that fast um, were having twice the success as average, and the schools that were shrinking that fast were having almost no success. On the other hand, though, when I looked at the number of schools that was affecting, there was really only one school in Nebraska that was growing at over 50%. I think maybe that was Elkhorn South. Uh, And there was only two that were shrinking at that rate. So really, most schools in Nebraska fit into their either shrinking slowly from 0 to 25% or growing slowly from 0 to 25%. And so really, uh, even though that is a a measure that shows success, it's just not going to tell us much in Nebraska. We don't have a lot of schools booming or busting that fast. So then I thought, well, you know, those things kind of work. Are, are there other factors maybe that Oklahoma doesn't include that, that I should look at? So I, so I thought of a couple things. I, I thought of a percentage of special education students, but I couldn't quickly find that data. So I kind of set that aside. Uh, And then I thought, well, what about how wealthy you are in valuation? We fund our public schools in Nebraska by property taxes. So what if I looked at how much valuation do you have per student? Does that lead you to athletic success? I thought, okay, what about relationship with other schools in your community? We've already seen that this ratio, uh, excuse me, radius matters uh, if you're within 15 miles, but is it an idea that being the biggest school in the community is an advantage or maybe being the smallest or being in the middle? So I thought I'd look at some relationships between schools and see if that predicted success. And the other thing I looked at was what a lot of people point at. Success leads to success. Some schools get traditionally successful. I know a lot of you have been in schools where, you know, you kind of get on a roll. And sometimes that roll lasts even beyond that great run of athletes you have. You know, you have some kids who just kind of have always won. And they think they're always going to win, so they keep winning. Does past success predict success? So I decided to look at those things. 
I looked first at valuations per student, and what I found right away is my numbers were all over the map. It actually looked like the schools with the poorest valuation were more successful on average uh, than the ones that were the richest. Um, the numbers didn't show any kind of pattern, and I actually thought maybe I was doing it wrong. So I called up our school district finance guy, and I started to tell him what I was doing, and he like cut me off and said, well, there's no way that'll show it. And he went into an explanation of how Nebraska funds its public schools and, uh, and how, how convoluted it is a little bit. And he said, that, that'll never show up in the end. And, and he's absolutely right. Uh, I didn't even get a chance to tell him that my data showed that. I didn't quite understand his explanation, uh, but I believe him that, that, that wealth and valuation is not a place to look to predict athletic success. So the next thing I looked at was kind of relationships in the community. So I came up with a bunch of categories. I said, okay, there are private schools in communities that have bigger public schools. Does that lead to success? Uh, does it help to be the second biggest public school in a community? Uh, does it help to be uh, a smaller private school in a community that has maybe three to five schools? Is it does it help you to be the private school in a community and you're bigger than the public school in the community? Um, is it best to be the biggest public school in a multi-school community instead of in a single public school community? Uh, how does that relate to being in the metro areas, Lincoln or Omaha and being a public school or being in Lincoln and Omaha and being a private school? And I, and I found some variation. Uh, private schools that are the largest in their community, uh, they average the best success. Now, there aren't very many of those. So again, we got the law of small numbers there. Uh, the next most successful were private schools schools in communities with bigger public schools. That was next. But we already kind of knew that, that the private schools were, were outdoing the public. Uh, the next best was to be a smaller private school in a, in a kind of community that has like three to five, three to five uh, schools in it, like a Grand Island or a Lincoln. Uh, well, not Lincoln, I guess. Uh, maybe that was just Grand Island. Uh, and then next came being the second biggest pu public school in the community, and that was kind of similar to being a Lincoln and Omaha public. There were definitely something there, but as I started to look at it, I thought, well, how would you ever legislate that? How would you ever write that out? Uh, how would you ever come up with a formula to predict success? So uh, I think probably the whole idea of the 15-mile radius states that must much simpler and much better than this idea of shared communities. Then finally, I looked at past athletic success. So basically, I just looked at the numbers from 2006 to 2011 and said, okay, if you were a successful school in that era, were you more likely to be a successful school in the next five years? If you won the last five years, are you likely to win again? And those numbers are probably the cleanest numbers I've had. As a, you know, the super successful teams over the five years, the first five years were the super successful teams over the second five years on average. Certainly there were outliers there, but, uh, but the success, you know, if you scored 81 to 90 uh, success points in that first five years, you were up at 70 on average uh, the second. If you were down at scoring 11 to just 20 
points, you are averaging about 10 success points in the next five years. And, and, and the chart is almost a straight line uh, where the most successful schools stay successful. And I think we all kind of knew that, that there's something about tradition uh, that builds on itself and probably that there are other factors kind of baked into those schools. Like, you know, schools will point to, hey, we, you know, we have a coaching staff we think is doing a great job. We have youth programs. We have a supportive community. You know, all those things that are baked in uh, and they show and they can be used to classify, I believe, and to make classifications more fair. Uh, I double-checked it in football because, again, you know, we kind of tend to think that uh, that football success really depends on enrollment. You know, you got to have the numbers. I, I myself have been known to say it takes an army to be successful in football. You know, you need lots of people who are willing to do little jobs, you know, and maybe never even get on the field. Those guys who practice and don't ever play, they're important in all sports, but especially important in football. Well, the data on past success to future success fits exactly on the chart in football. The more successful you were in the last five years, the more successful I can predict you will be on average over the next five years. Um, I thought of some other things I might check, uh, like percentage of ELL students. Again, that data wasn't easy for me to get. Uh, roster sizes. I, you know, I think some of you saw the pictures the other day from the Class B playoff game where Elkhorn South had, you know, it looked like a hundred guys on the sideline, and Aurora it looked like barely had a second eleven over on the sideline. But I just I don't know how you could legislate that. I think it would be too easy for the schools to manipulate. I, I think you would be building in. Um, Maybe some incentives to cut kids, which is not what we want in high school sports. Um, I also thought, okay, do you want to measure success in all sports? And I thought, yeah, you probably do, uh, but I don't have time to punch in all that data. But I really feel strongly that, that, that the data would hold out if you did all sports instead of just the four I did. And then finally I thought, well, do you need to look at the number of sports offered by a school compared to others in a class? You know, if an enrollment is important, and then if you're dividing it up between three teams at your school and somebody you're competing against in that uh, winter season is only dividing it up into one team, it would seem like they have an advantage. I couldn't quite figure out how to test that, but, but that's an idea that I think is out there. Uh, but it left me with some things that I definitely learned. Um, I think I can point at four things that definitely predict success in Nebraska. Enrollment, I can't eliminate that because we have a class system. I, I don't think anybody here is thinking we should just go to a one-class system. Uh, but I think also you can look at that free and reduced lunch percentage, that that predicts success, and that can be used, and that's kind of a hidden factor. And maybe that's you know the factor that we're seeing sometimes, and we don't know what label to put on it, so we call it different things, whether it's public-private or suburban city or whatever we want to call it. I think that poverty factor is something that can be put in a number, can be evaluated fairly, and can be used to classify teams. Proximity to larger schools. I think it's pretty obvious that, that that's an advantage on average. Again, not every team. It doesn't work for every school, but on average it does, and so it can be used. And then I think the biggest one, past success produces future success. Um, and when I uh, got a chance to talk to that public-private school committee, uh, 
you know, I said, I, I think you can you can do something where maybe you begin uh, by filtering your basic enrollment, and then you look at, okay, who has the low poverty advantage? Who has that 15-mile radius advantage? And then when you get a list of schools, check them and see, have they been having success? Because if they have those advantages but aren't having success, well, then maybe they have disadvantages that we can't quantify. You know, if they haven't been having success, there's no reason to move them up. But if they have those advantages and they're having lots of success, they're liable to keep having that success. So let's move them up a class and make the classification system uh, more fair. Okay, so what about these proposals that uh, the, uh, the NSAA is going to be considering this week in, in district meetings? Um, I really kind of told you about the football one. Uh, you know, I think it's a good idea to shift that to counting boys. That, that just makes sense for football, and maybe we should do that in every sport. Uh, but especially in football, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the idea of setting classes at a certain enrollment size instead of saying we're going to have so many schools here, I think that becomes a more flexible system for Nebraska where we know we've got a group of schools growing and we've got a group of schools shrinking. You know, we know people are moving to the urban centers. Uh, we know the communities along the interstate uh, to a large extent are growing and the further away from the interstate they're not. You know, those are generalizations, but we know that. And I think by setting some sizes of how, how big we expect those classes to be, we can justify if a class grows a little smaller or, or one grows a little bigger that, hey, at least you're getting to play against like teams. Uh, but then that brings us um, to what the public-private school committee came up with. And, and remember, these people, <laughs> that, that was not a committee I think a lot of people were volunteering to be on. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it till I went over to kind of show them my math that day. And Dr. Teneper opened the meeting by telling them that he had gotten as many angry phone calls about public-private school from both sides as he had about the uh, uh, gender locker room situation. <laughs> Remember when that was kind of blowing up? And you know there are people in Nebraska who would be upset about that. You know, he said the private and public school calls were just as heated uh, sometimes is nasty, and and I really thought, wow, you know, this committee, uh, you guys are uh, are putting yourself out there. So uh, what I'd like to do is do my best here to explain the proposal they came up with. Uh, though I have to admit that sometimes NSAA legislation is not written in the clearest formats, so I'm, I'm going to try to uh, to uh, make that clear. One thing that I really like is that in almost every district, the proposal is officially submitted by a pair of the committee members where one is from a public school and one is from a private institution. For example, in District 1, the idea carries the names of Tim Allward of Lincoln Pius and Ryan Rue of Norris. Um, and I, I just think that's a great idea. In the, in the districts where maybe there wasn't a private school member on the committee, uh, they at least have two different, a big and a small school uh, committee member proposing that. And, and, you know, I think this is a sensitive subject, so I think they're smart doing that. Okay, here we go. This is the public-private committee's formula for classifying schools on factors beyond just enrollment. Number one, schools will still be placed into classifications according to their enrollment numbers. So that's step one. We're still going to divide up. And so the new football idea of doing it by a certain enrollment instead of by a number of schools would still work here. Um, then step two, and, and these steps I, I kind of 
I kind of added these numbers to make it clearer. Step two is in class B and smaller, we're going to evaluate every school with a success formula, looking for teams to possibly move up a class. Okay? Step three, football teams will only be evaluated at their regular two-year classification because of scheduling. We do that on two-year. Every other sport is done one year. And so... Each school will be evaluated to move in a sport only when that school would be reclassified anyway, either one or two years. Step four, they're going to have a success point formula that will be added up over a four-year period. Um, And that four-year period, I think, makes total sense because, again, you empty out of high school in four years. You know, a great athlete comes to you as a freshman, he's gone in four years. Um, Step five, schools will be given one point for qualifying in the top eight in a state tournament or playoff or finishing in the top eight of a state-scored competition like track or wrestling, and that will include ties. So if there's a tie for eighth, each school will will get a point. So the top eight in each sport get a point. Um, Schools will be, step six, schools will be given an additional point for making it to the semifinals or being in the top four. You can kind of see the pattern here. The next step, a school gets an additional point for playing in a state championship game or finishing in the top two. And finally, a school gets one more point for a state championship win or tie. So in each sport, you could get up to four points for each sport in a given year. Past success then becomes kind of the trigger mechanism of this new classification system. And uh, they'll add up each school's points, how successful they are. And uh, when a school gets to 10 within four years now, uh, by this rule, they would start next year. And so the first four-year period would start then. Nothing that happens this year would be considered. But a team next year, you know, a powerful team in a class, uh, you know, in the fall, if you picked up a, a volleyball state championship and a football final, that'd be seven points. Uh, you know, finishing the top eight uh, at boys and girls cross country, and you'd be at 10 points. And so uh, starting the year after, they'd take a look and say, okay, you're at 10 points now. That wouldn't send, uh, that wouldn't send them straight up. That just would trigger time to look at some of the other factors. Um, and uh, if, uh, if, by the way, they were looking at a co-op school, they said they would look at the demographics because the next steps are, are going to be about demographics of a school. They'd look at the demographics of the largest school in the co-op. Okay, so let's say a school triggers that 10-point uh, number, uh, that they've had enough success that now we're going to look at them. So uh, then they would continue to add to their points. Um, a school receives one point if it's within that 50-mile radius. Now, they've changed the number to 850, which totally makes sense in Nebraska because that is kind of the number uh, at the division between Class A and Class B. Now, that number moves a little bit, but that's about where it is usually. Um, a school would get one point for being in that radius if the school is under 15% federal free and reduced lunch. So they moved that marker a little bit. If they're under 15%, they get another point. Um, so if they were already at 11 uh, after, uh, after that success I described, that would be just in the fall alone they could get to 10 already. Um, so you can see that some schools would get there. Um, 
If they're under 15%, they get another point. So they could have picked up two more already. They could be at 13. Uh, now, a school that's found to be over 40% of free or reduced lunch would actually have a point deducted. So even if they're having success, if they're a high-poverty school, uh, they, would, they would still have that point taken away. Um, which makes sense with the with the stats I've seen as far as predicting future success. Uh, then they had the numbers on special education, so they added that. I wondered if that wouldn't show success, and I think they've determined that it does. So if you are under a 10% special education enrollment, that's another point. So a school that picked up all three of those points could be at, uh, at 14 maybe now. Um, and if a school is over 30% special education, then they would have a point deducted. Okay, now that's the end of the adding up points. So you can see even a school with a state championship, a runner-up, and, and, and two top eight finishes uh, would only be at 14. And the number they say to move up is 19. So you're talking about a school that's going to have to win maybe a couple championships, uh, which would give them eight points, and a runner-up finish for three uh, you know, they pretty much have to get to 16 and, and then have those other three factor points added in to move up a class. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how often that's going to be triggered. I, I think that's a high, a high level, but we'll see. Uh, uh, maybe for another week, I'll take a look at a couple possible schools and see if they would have gotten there. Uh, if a school was already moving up because of enrollment when they triggered the 19, they wouldn't move up two classes. If a school was moving down after a, after a four-year period where they triggered the 19, uh, then they would move down and then move right back up to where they had been. Um, I think it's a novel approach. Uh, I think it approaches uh, what people have been complaining about with some schools winning so much that maybe they belong in a larger class. Uh, I'm not sure how often it would be triggered. Uh, to finish up, I just want to kind of quote the committee on the pros and cons they see uh, from the system. Pros, they say the uh, NSAA board ap appointed them, the committee, to look at the private-public issue to determine whether there were measurable reasons for the higher percentage of championships won by non-public school, and if so, were there appropriate ways to address the matter. The committee was charged with trying to identify advantages and disadvantages, particular to public schools and private schools alike. Uh, and I think that's important. I think that's a very Nebraskan way to, to, to look at this. And recognizing that some public schools enjoyed elevated levels of ongoing success as well and, and find a way to categorize that. Uh, the committee was sensitive to not strictly penalize schools for being successful, but rather to use success as a benchmark to identify schools uh, and then explore whether they had some other unseen factors that were different from just enrollment that justified moving them up. Uh, they also list a con. They say penalizing programs that have established solid, uh, solid programs, ensuring uh, that all data from each school is accurate and supplied. Now, most of that data is going to come from the federal and state government, so I don't think they're going to have a problem there. Uh, if this is approved, and, and the process now is, uh, is that this is district meetings, and this is what's considered a bylaw change. Both of the, the, uh, the proposals are bylaw change. They must successfully pass through the legislative process, which means they have to pass in, I can't remember, it's two or three district meetings this week in November, and then they have to pass uh, 
in the district meetings in January. Then they go to the legislative commission and then to the representative assembly. So there's quite a few steps. Uh, and then it's possible they would even need to be ratified by member schools. So there would be a lot of steps between now and this coming into effect. But I think just talking about it shows Nebraska is being proactive about this idea. And I think that that plan uh, is one that, that will catch the attention of other states uh, that I think it's a good and a fair plan. All right. Uh, I told you we would be heading into the weeds today, and we definitely have. I've probably talked way too much. Uh, but I appreciate you listening to Suiting Up Varsity again this week. Uh, next week, we'll head back to uh, some more historical time traveling. I've also got some books on Nebraska high school sports history that I want to uh, review a little bit. Christmas time is coming. There might be some books you'd like to add to your list for Santa. So that's all coming up. Uh, remember, you can contact us on the Internet. On Twitter, we are at, at SuitUpVarsity. Uh, you can tweet questions at us and Facebook, as I said earlier today, facebook.com slash suitingupvarsity. Uh, thanks for joining us again, and we hope you'll be here next week. This has been Suiting Up Varsity, Episode 7. Written and produced by me, Greg Mays. Technical and research assistance by my brother, Tate Mays. Helpful audio advice and encouragement from Chris Shukai. And as always, dedicated to Jerry Mathers, the godfather of Nebraska high school sports history and the inspiration for this podcast. Suiting Up Varsity is the anchor show of the Nebraska Varsity Network. Copyright 2016.